Dementia in Practice is recorded and produced in multiple locations. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet. We pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples, their ongoing cultures and connections to the lands and waters of Australia. Part of it is about making sure that people can easily move around a house making sure that somebody's in a position where pots and pans and things in their kitchen are put away. And then in some cases, it's actually leaving out prompts that actually will prompt somebody to go to the kitchen to make toast. Hi, Hilton Coffee with you again. This is a podcast that's made by GPs for GPs and other health professionals who want to learn more about dementia. Dr. Marita Long and Dr. Steph Daly, my colleagues from Dementia Training Australia are with me as always. Hi, Hilton. Hilton, I'm really keen to hear this interview because actually I'm currently in the process of building a granny flat for my mum and the architect actually talked about this concept of ageing in place, which was something that I hadn't heard of before. So I'm fascinated to hear what our architect has to say today. Ageing in place, I'd never thought of that either. What a great idea. So um, we'll be speaking in this episode with Nick Seaman, who's an architect who I think also has an interest in ageing in place. I've got a confession to make, uh, and that is that I probably haven't thought enough about a person's lived environment, their home, when I'm considering interventions or assistance to help them when they're living with dementia. Yeah, I wonder if part of that is that we don't do a lot of home visits anymore either. That's sort of something that has been a real change in general practice, I think, because of time constraints. So from the office, we're always thinking about who's there to help them at home and are they safe to be at home? But we're not actually thinking about what the home's like or the home environment. So I'm like Steph, I'm really excited to hear what Nick's got to say. Yeah, so I spoke with architect Nick Seaman. Nick is uh, the lead environment consultant at Dementia Training Australia. And I asked him what impact a person's physical surroundings can have on their overall well-being. I always talk about the fact that you know, the physical environment, the rooms, the, the gardens, the, the, the spaces that we spend our time affect everybody and they affect, you know, they affect how we function socially. But for most people, this doesn't actually matter too much because we're able to deal with the barriers that, that a building might set up or we're able to, to accommodate things that are not ideal spaces. And so in the, uh, the situation, a setting where we're thinking through somebody whose capabilities are compromised, I think an environment really does affect your life. So a building can set up barriers where it's harder for somebody to move around. It can be more or less confusing. Or on the positive, it can be a reminder of who we are and actually give us cues that are, that are useful to our life. So it's kind of like those things that you're not aware of it until there's some problems and then the environment does become a bit of an issue. How did you as, a, as an architect come to start focusing on these sort of things? For me, when I was at university, a lot of the subjects that we did that talked about the social impact of our, of our work or environmental psychology, they seemed very structuralist and obvious. And it was only when I saw my, my grandmother go into a residential aged care facility that started to make um, to, to mean anything to me. And so in, in the light of that, 
I was finishing off my uni. My grandmother had just gone into care. And to try and process and deal with that, I wrote my undergraduate research looking at what environments do for us as we age. And in, in that, I actually went around and interviewed um, a dozen people in sort of long-form interviews and looked at where they were living and how that had changed. Um, and the sort of thing that I, that I looked at and realised from that was that these people had changed their buildings so that they were spending most of their time in one place. They were making sure that was comfortable. It was within easy access of, of a phone, like before mobile phones, easy access of a phone, easy access of a kitchen, bathroom. They could see where things were, but also they could see people coming and going. So they basically set themselves up in a place that was really oriented to their needs and also had these constant reminders about who they were and what they were doing. That to me was really sort of eye-opening that just even healthy ageing, let alone confusions or other issues that might arise through a dementia, that the environment was actually having a big um, effect on the lives of these people and how well they were, they were functioning, how well they were doing things. So were these people that were functioning well? Absolutely. I mean, I think that, that these were people who were living either in their home or, or in some form of a low-care hostel. They were doing okay. The things that were affected were their mobility was affected, um, their level of awareness. They were often slightly confused, but generally where, where they were and what they were doing. Also, for some of them, incontinence and other issues started to come into it. So for me, they were at the beginning point of of needing a building, needing their environment to do something more for them than what you or I might need. I often use an example that actually comes from Colin Cunningham from the Dementia Centre when he talks about in residential aged care or a hospital or even a hotel, somebody sitting there who actually needs to use a bathroom. If they can't get to the bathroom easily because they can't see where it is or there are obstacles in the way or it's a noisy place and it's confusing for them or even the carpet might be heavily patterned and make it hard for them to get across the floor. Any of those things might result in them not being able to get to the bathroom on time. We might say that they've got incontinence or should we be saying they've actually got environmentally induced incontinence because really the environment has made it harder for them to operate through things they need to do in their daily life. Could you talk a little more, Nick, specifically beyond ageing, how dementia, particularly in the earlier stages while someone's living at home, how the environment may impact on someone who's developing a dementia? The way in which I approach through, especially through my work at DTA, that I approach understanding dementia in different stages of development comes from a presentation that was made as part of the University of Tasmania MOOC that I went through several years ago. And it talked about um, different stages being a point where we're trying to support independence at an early stage and somebody might be living at home. At a later stage, we might be focusing more on their safety. They may have moved into care at this point. And a final stage, we're looking at people's comfort. When we're looking at independence, an environment has the ability to actually support uh, people being well-oriented or badly-oriented, people being able to move around or have a harder time moving around, and also sensory change will have a big effect on, on people's lives in terms of both healthy ageing and what might happen to our sight or hearing through healthy ageing, and then the added complication for somebody living with a dementia. The things that I start off with are issues that are quite simple changes that we can focus on, things like if a space is cluttered, that's a problem. So 
people decluttering a space as a starting point. Um, in terms of what happens to our eyes, we age, and again, further complicated by a dementia, higher levels of light are needed to deal with macular degeneration or other changes in the eye. And also, we have a harder time filtering noise. So if we can reduce the amount of noise that somebody has in the background, that's going to, these are three things that will make a difference, reducing clutter, reducing noise and increasing lighting. So it's interesting you say about clutter. I've been watching the great program on uh, ABC TV, Old People's Home for four-year-olds, and they've been showing some clips of people in their homes, and uh, they do seem very, very cluttered. And I know when my father was developing dementia, we spoke with him and his partner about trying to declutter a little bit, but there was quite a lot of resistance to that. What are your thoughts, Nick, about some of the the barriers or the resistance to people making changes to their environment to help support their independence? That's a really interesting one. And clutter is, is a great point between I'll come back to some of the the evidence base and what we look at, but one of the principles that I'll come back to talks about familiarity. So the familiarity of a space for us and the the way it keeps reminding us of who we are is is the objects that are there. So it's a balance between those objects being there and us feeling like this is our home and we're familiar with it and it being excessive and feeling like clutter. So I think there is this balance which everybody has to strike up between is there so much stuff here that I will not see the things I need to see. So with a kitchen, for instance, if the presence of a pot is going to remind me that I can actually make myself a meal or the presence of of bread will remind me I can make a sandwich, what do I leave out that are giving us those cues? How do we manage the stimuli? So we've got the cues to see what we want to see and what we need to see and to have those reminders and and where are we actually having too much and it all just becomes a blur. So I don't think there's a black and white answer. I think it's more about people understanding that this is an issue and realising that in most, I mean, in my house, there's too much clutter and we need to clean it up, but it doesn't really matter for me or my kids. But in the house of, of an older person or somebody dealing with dementia, it really is something where the clutter, then needs to be the process of putting things away in order that they're going to be able to see the things that matter. So see the things that matter, but also, and while at the same time, see the things that have meaning for them and and help them with their sense of identity. Absolutely. I thought that was fascinating. One of the things I was listening to, he said about the familiarity of a place. And just recently with some of the work I've been doing in the geriatric service, there was a a, a person who was living with dementia recently diagnosed and her family went into the home environment and noticed it was really chaotic. There were papers everywhere. So they decided to clear up the home and they put all the papers away and they made it very neat and tidy. And when the lady came back to her home, she felt like she was in another apartment. She was like, why have you moved me from my home? And so that recognition that sometimes people's things give them some sense of place is really important. So some clutter is good clutter and not to just remove all of those items um, because you can increase somebody's disorientation in their own environment. So talking about the balance between familiarity and clutter, I remember every time before exam period, the first thing I did was clean my room so I could study. And I used to think that was just procrastination. But, you know, you've got to wonder, does that clearing of clutter actually mean that you do have more ability to focus and concentrate and 
be aware of, you know, the tasks at hand. It really struck a chord with me getting that, trying to get that balance so the place is um, sort of a clearer space so that your mind can manage more but then keeping the nice things that make it yours as well. And I think the other thing about that story, Steph, that it highlights is the balance between doing what we think might be right for a person and keeping the person with dementia central to the process. So clearly that family had good intentions but neglected to keep the person living with dementia, their mother or or wife, central to the process of trying to make those change. And that was the consequences of that. Mm. The other thing that can be helpful, I was struck by what he said about leaving the bread out so you know to make a sandwich. I sometimes say to people who might not know whether they've eaten breakfast or not, leave the dishes from breakfast in the sink. And then when you come back at lunchtime, you can see whether or not you ate breakfast and then family can also come in and see what's been eaten during the day so that you get an understanding of how somebody's managing at home. So a full sink of dishes might help people to understand their daily intake, for example. That's great. Thanks for giving me permission to leave the dishes in the sink, Steph. (laughs) That's great. Um, Before we go back to Nick, though, I really um, was intrigued by this concept of environmentally induced incontinence and I've never thought of that before and certainly that's going to prompt me now to be thinking when you know someone reports to me that one of the patients has become incontinent maybe to have a little bit of a think about what else could be going on. Well let's go back to the interview and hear what Nick's further got to say. There's a body of research that goes back 30 or 40 years. So what I'm about to run through here are issues that people were talking about in reports I've read from the 1980s. But in 2001, um, there was work that was being done by people like Richard Fleming here and Mary Marshall uh, in Scotland, which was starting to look more in a more organised way, I think, at what are we trying to do with buildings? And Mary Marshall wrote a piece in 2001 in which it was a significant statement that she said buildings should compensate for disability, they should maximise independence, they should reinforce personal identity, and they should enhance our self-esteem and confidence. So those issues of compensating for disability and maximising independence in particular, those are issues that relate to us whether we're living in the family home, we've moved to somewhere like a retirement uh, village, or we're in residential aged care. They're these common ideas, these common aims. And from that base, Mary and Richard and, and, and others developed a set of principles that have been fairly consistent for about 20 years that talk about what we try and do. The key design principles I think of in terms of a family home would be managing stimuli that we've already touched upon, supporting movement, and for me in particular, movement out to gardens and movement out of a house as well as within it, and maintaining familiarity so that people can continue to recognise and be reminded of where they are and, and who they are. So those again were managing stimuli, supporting movement and maintaining familiarity. So Nick, what sort of things can we as GPs do when we're speaking with someone's family or carers? What can we talk with them about to help them best assist the person who's living with dementia? 
There is a lot of assistive um, technology, and I think that after the last year of us dealing with COVID, I think we do have that ability to start to look at technology a bit differently. But for me, the first point is for people to realise that environment matters. And I think for most people, that's not something that they're conscious of. So people may have, um, somebody, a family member may have just gotten a diagnosis of dementia, or, or they may have, and the last thing they're thinking of is what I need to do with my building. So for me, the first point is to realise that the environment matters and that there are simple things to do. Um, I think for, for me, the next step is, and this would be uh, things I think anybody would be doing in terms of supporting somebody understanding what dementia was, is that there is a large body of, of work now of people who have dementia starting to talk through their experience and their challenges. Um, in Australia, we've got Kate Swaffer and Christine Bryden. Um, there's a lot of work that Agnes Houston has produced, uh, again, with the Dementia Centre, in which she talks through how her dementia has affected her life. And so those resources, I think, are really important. So for me, that first um, message to, to somebody who has a diagnosis of dementia would be about understanding it and understanding why their home environment matters. So are these uh, videos that people can watch to help them get a better understanding? Absolutely. But there are also um, books of people going through specific um, ways of enabling somebody in, in their environment. So there are ways of people actually um, adjusting their home. Um, and a lot of these things are actually small changes. So things like when we talk about clutter, it's something which doesn't involve somebody going out and renovating their house. It's actually just a daily process or when somebody's visiting um, a family member of them actually put, helping put stuff away. Um, and so for me, that is yet starting to understand the sensory changes of healthy ageing and the sensory changes are caused by, that can be caused by dementia and then starting to think through, well, what can I do in a home? thinking through managing stimuli, whether it's uh, noise, smells or, um, or sights, um, as well as supporting movement and maintaining that familiarity within a home. So you've mentioned supporting movement a couple of times. What sort of things can people do in their home to help support movement? What are some specific examples? Part of it is about um, where, I guess this is a larger form of clutter, making sure that people can easily move around a house that there aren't going to be chairs and, and other bits of furniture. If over somebody's lifetime a house has become filled with furniture, it might require thinning that out. In terms of relating to clutter within, say, a kitchen, making sure that somebody's in a position where pots and pans and things in their kitchen are put away. And then in some cases, it's actually leaving out prompts. Once you've pulled back on, on that clutter, it's actually leaving out prompts that actually will prompt somebody to go to the kitchen to make toast. In terms of somebody going outside into a garden, there might be steps that they need to work with. And so that's something which, um, which small changes can make. Again, being able to see the garden as a reminder to go outside can prompt that movement and support people going there and making sure there are good paths or that there's a table and chairs outside that somebody can easily go to. And because we're talking about operating within your home, it's something where um, they're probably familiar with it to start off with, but it would be saying, well, what are all the things that might stop this person going outside? In my experience, people want to be able to stay in their home as long as possible. I've got to admit, I probably haven't thought adequately about ensuring that their home is set up right 
as a way of uh, facilitating them staying in home longer. But talking today has really helped to bring that to the front of my mind more. And hopefully for our listeners, that, that will be the, the case as well. But before we wrap up, Nick, I'm really interested in your role at Dementia Training Australia. Can you expand on that a little more? Through Dementia Training Australia, there's a number of resources that, we, that we've developed. So there are books, there are activity cards, there are, there's a, an online course. And a lot of it's oriented to, in the first instance, looking at residential aged care, looking at a care home. And for me, that's because that's where a lot of the issues are most present and they're, they're, you're working with people where they're most problematic. But many of the things that we talk about through those resources are very applicable to a home environment as well. So, for instance, we've developed through the last um, 12 months, we've developed a dozen activity cards and each of them talks about some particular issue. So one of those activity cards recently talked about high levels of light and at the same time reducing glare and goes through all the things somebody might think about. So a, a somebody who has dementia or is dealing with a family member who has dementia and trying to work out ways of making an environment more supportive, looking at those cards might make them or prompt them to think, okay, what are the, th the places around this room that might create glare or might be too dark or might have other, other issues? There's an, another one of the activity cards talks about the importance of tonal contrast, for instance, and the fact that a dark mat on a floor might end up looking like a hole or a barrier that, again, is difficult for somebody to navigate moving around. So we look at those different things through books that we've done, activity cards, but also we lead people through it in an, a, an online course that we developed last year that looks at how do we create supportive environments. Um, that's a three to six hour course, depending on, on how quickly somebody goes through the exercises. But it's something where even though a lot of it is speaking to staff members in residential aged care, it actually is very applicable to different types of environments, whether it's a retirement living situation or somebody's home. So the starting point for us is that we do have these resources of the cards. Oh, we also do some webinars. There are webinars that we, we run fairly frequently that start to engage with some of these issues. Nick, I can feel a job coming on for you and me to develop something in this regard specifically for general practice, GPs, practice nurses to help them, uh, particularly with their patients who are in stage one dementia uh, to help enhance their independence at home. That sounds fantastic. Well, I for one can't wait for that webinar because that's just opened up a whole new aspect of management that, yeah, I haven't been aware of at all. And it looks like some really simple changes could make a real difference to people staying at home longer. So I'd encourage everyone to have a look at the activity cards and the resources on DTA, actually, because pretty simple things. It's also interesting. I've got a colleague at work who did some research on different coloured plates that you might use when yeah. you're having meal times. And so he changed the colour of the plates. He works in a dementia support unit. So people with stage, you know, two and quite have quite advanced disease, but they changed the colour of the plates to red. And when they did that, they noticed that people ate more because they could see the contrast. So if you imagine potatoes or rice on a white plate, you can't always see that the food is in front of you. And so they really noticed that nutritional status went up, people's weight went up because they were eating better. So, and that's a really simple thing. It's the same with the color of the toilet seat. 
So people can't always see the colour of the mm. toilet seat. And I think it's not only just in people's homes that you can think about it. You can think about it in your own general practice. You know, general practice is a busy environment. It's often noisy in the waiting room and it might be quite challenging for some people to sit in that environment or the carpets are often you know like a greyish colour and not very easily just not easy to see and the signage is all you know so appraising your own working environment can also help people who are living with dementia when they're coming into that practice environment. And also I find lots of um, people ask me for tips for looking for aged care facilities and I'm always at a little bit of a loss to be honest and say oh I suppose a dementia specific unit is what you want to be looking for. But now you can actually say, well, here are some things that you want to look at when you're going to the residential aged care facility. And again, a lot of that information is in the, the DTA resources for people to access and give, give people uh, some advice now. So it's always great to feel like you've got something else you can offer. Another uh, patient that I've recently been looking after, one of the great joys of her day is to go out into the back garden and spend some time outside. And she had these really treacherous steps that were causing her to be at risk of falls. Um, and and so a simple thing is to, is to talk to her about having a ramp put in. So it's about thinking about for that person, what is the thing in their day that is giving them the most enjoyment and trying to work out how you can change their environment so that it works for that person. And focusing on the positive, like what we talked about with prevention, what makes things good today, not only to prevent them from your patient from having a fall and a fracture at some time in the future through falling down the stairs, but what will make her happy today is that thing about being able to safely access the garden. And just thinking back to when I interviewed Anne, she raised a really important point about perhaps downsizing early and making that change to a more suitable living environment so that you can get used to that orientation before it becomes more difficult for you. And I think that was a real key step that her husband actually suggested, which has benefited her later on. So, Steph, there you're talking about the first episode in this podcast series where you spoke with Anne, who's a woman living with dementia. In the next episode, we'll get into the topic of management. Yeah, I'd never thought about viewing a person's environment as part of the management, but hearing Nick talk today has really brought that into focus for me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking more about that. And in the meantime, if you want more resources, head to our website, dta.com.au or follow Dementia Training Australia on Facebook or at Dementia Train AU on Twitter. So as always, um, thanks to Steph Daly and Marita Long, my co-conspirators, my co-hosts. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're a person living with dementia, or if you're a family member or carer of someone living with dementia, Dementia Australia has some great resources. The National Dementia Helpline is 1800 100 500 or you can visit dementia.org.au. Dementia in Practice is an initiative of Dementia Training Australia which is funded by the Australian Government.